The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper, and I'm delighted to be with you again. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about sustainability with my guest today, Anthony Day. Now, after two shows uh, based on our book, The Power to Get Things Done, whether you feel like it or not, um, I'd like to uh, say a thank you to my co-author, Dr. Stephen Levinson, who joined me last week and uh, really gave me uh, an additional take on the book. Um, We're so proud to have that book finally written and now out in the world adding value. And it felt like at times we needed great sustainability to stick at it and to make it happen. Now, today we're going to talk about sustainability, which... I think he's just such a crucial and important subject and one that should really be firmly on the business agenda. It's no good to just be giving the impression that you're doing good. People today look to trade and to work for organizations with integrity, you know, organizations that care about the environment and about um, business doing good. You know, business doing good on this show is something that um, is very at the heart of, um, of what we're about. Um, and I'm really keen to kind of explore this sustainability agenda and unravel it. I was very inspired recently. I read a really helpful article which explains some of the issues um, around the climate. And we're going to talk about uh, those coming forward um, with uh, Anthony. Um, but I was fascinated and, and shocked to find that 13 of the 14 warmest years were recorded in the 21st century, with 2015 on course to set another record, to hear how sea ice was um, diminishing at an incredible rate, and uh, also how extreme weather was becoming um, noticeably uh, much more visible. Uh, but I was quite surprised that only two people liked the article that I put on Facebook, which I'd, I'd shared, compared to over 50 kind c- uh, comments when I announced my fellowship with the Professional Speaking Association recently. And I guess on these big picture issues, it's sometimes almost too immense to uh, think about it. Um, it's almost outside of individuals' control. However, companies and widespread changes in habits and the application of technology, I think, are probably needed. About a year ago, I saw the sustainability coach, Anthony Day, just articulate the issues and opportunities just really, really well. And I felt that I really understood them for the first time, and I'm therefore delighted to have him on the show today. He speaks about sustainability to business conferences, public organizations, school groups, as a speaker, seminar leader, and facilitator, works with a really impressive business client list. 
He's a presenter for senior business groups like the Academy for Chief Executives and Vistage, which are, are, are very important groups in the United Kingdom. He publishes the weekly Sustainable Futures Report on iTunes and at www.susbiz.biz. So a huge welcome today to Anthony Day. Thank you very much, Chris. But, uh, Anthony, um, wonderful to uh, talk to you. And um, I think uh, I'm just going to uh, share something just um, sort of about you at the at this conjecture and get you to share uh, something in that we're, we're making this uh, doing this interview right now and literally I believe you can look out of your windows and see flood water. Oh yes, yes, it is going down, but there's there's a lot of flood water at the moment. Is it because um, you're whereabouts are you based? Well, I'm in York in the north of England, and I'm sitting, uh, my house is right on the edge of the River Ouse, and the River Ouse came up to a maximum height over its summer normal um, of 14 foot 6, that's uh, 4 metres and a bit, Um, uh, but it's gone down a bit now, and uh, so we're well out of danger. Oh, that's that's good. So you'll be your subject to sustainability, it must be, it's right um, visibly smack bang in front of your eyes right now. So, so what was it that sparked a former accountant to shift their career to focus on sustainability? Well, I've been interested in this sort of thing for a very long time. I and mean, right back in the 70s, the Ecologist magazine published something called Blueprint for Survival. Now, in those days, it was pretty much about pollution. And then, uh, as things moved on, I read The End of Oil, and that was about the problems that uh, would happen when we ran out of oil. And now the focus seems to be very much on um, carbon emissions and global warming. All these things are part of sustainability, but um, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but, 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 I mean, but was it, um, you know, were you kind of obviously shocked and to, to see this uh, occurring and to, to read about it and learn about it? But you've actually gone and, you know, transformed your career based upon it. Well, so, since, uh, since 2005, yes, I've been doing nothing else but uh, um, trying to promote the idea of sustainable business. I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't dance around in the moonlight and hug trees. I take a very pragmatic view that we have got challenges in sustainability. When I say we, I mean you and I, I mean the business community, I mean governments. We have got to face up to these challenges. We've got to understand these challenges and we've got to take action. And from the things I read, uh, it, we haven't got that much time to, uh, well, I've not much, not much time left, I'm afraid. So, so you have you know, a real kind of sense of urgency with your work. Hmm. Um, so how, how would you define sustainability? Well, I mean, you can look at it from the point of view of staying in business and staying in profit. You can say that it's about enjoying life, but making sure that you don't damage the planet so future generations can enjoy it in just the same way as we do. Uh, it comes down to making the very best use of the world's limited resources. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so it's making the best best use of them, but it's it's making sure is it that they're available for for future generations to or to enjoy and to to live with, so we don't yes. run out. Yeah. Yes, I mean on the face of it, you might say, well, our, our um, resource is limited uh, because commodities. Um, Commodity prices have crashed over the last few months, 
And it's true that coal, we've got more coal than we're ever going to need. Steel prices have uh, plummeted, and that's caused serious problems around the world, not least in the UK. Copper, copper prices have fallen. But there are other things, there are other resources which are scarce and which are putting pressures. For example, rare earth metals. Now, by that, I mean things like gold and um, tantalum and niobium and hafnium, um, which we've probably never heard of apart from gold. But every one of our smartphones has got those things in it. And they are increasingly rare. And unfortunately, we are throwing those metals away. When we finish with our smartphones, we get the new one and, and we chuck it away. But not just minerals. Agricultural land, given that we've got pressures from population and we've also got pressures from climate change, agricultural land is a finite and scarce resource. Oil is another problem as well, although um, not just as a, as a fuel, but as a feedstock, because the plastics and pharmaceuticals and fertilizers and an awful lot of things we take for granted actually come from oil. And then there's water. Water is another problem as well. So the question is, can we use technology to make more with less? And I think the answer is, if we face up to technology and we develop our technology, we can do that. And we've got examples of that already. I mean, if you look at 3D printing, and a new way of 3D printing, yeah. you can actually produce a component on your desk with a thing that looks a bit like a laser printer, and it builds up layer by layer by layer by layer. And it transforms the manufacturing process because... If you have a laser printer on your desk and you have a bag of composite, you pour it in the top, and I can email you a structural design, and you can feed that into the machine, and you can produce that product there and then in your own home. No factory, no distribution system, and the beauty of it, of course, is that it uses just as much composite as you need, and that's all. Whereas if I have a block of steel or a block of aluminium or a block of titanium and I want to make something out of it, I put it on a lathe and I cut away all the bits I don't want. They're all over the floor. That's all waste. It had to be mined. It had to be refined. It had to be brought to the factory. But it's all waste. 3D printing is incredibly efficient, apart from all the other clever things it does. But if we talk about renewing, if we talk about using technology to make more with less, well, look at renewable energy. The thing about renewable energy is that once you've got a solar farm or you've got a wind farm or you've got um, uh, a tidal power station or even a geothermal power station uh, using heat from uh, under the surface of the earth, the fuel is free. You don't have to buy fuel for that sort of power station. Once you've built it, the fuel comes for nothing. So that's a very good example, I think, of more with less. So what we have to do is we have to develop technology but we also have to adopt and adapt to what we've already got, because a lot of these technologies exist. We've simply got to implement them. Yeah, yeah, uh, makes uh, makes a lot of sense. And what you've said there, you know, there's all those different categories and uh, resources being being very you know being very scarce and using them at a high rate. Um, but what I'm I'm kind of sort of thinking here is, um, you know, whether Things like 3D printing, whether some industries will actually embrace that because it completely cuts across their own models of production. Well, I suppose it does. Uh, but do you know the defense manufacturer, BAE? Yeah. Um, they are making use of it because the beauty of it is that they support the, uh, the RAF 
and the British forces all over the world. Now, as far as uh, aircraft are concerned, if they need a spare part for aircraft, um, and using traditional methods, it's got to be courier air freighted across the world to where it's needed. But if you've got a 3D printer, uh, the, um, uh, the people can actually manufacture it on site. And BAE have only got to send the instructions across the internet to this remote 3D printer, and uh, and the product can be made there and then. Obviously, it's a question of scale. You, you, you can't make the very largest things at this stage, and you're restricted to some extent by the materials that you can use, although it's um, it's beginning to be possible to, to use metals as well as uh, plastic composites as well. So um, I think that although you may get an organization like BAE, which has traditional manufacturing, or any other which has traditional manufacturing, they've got to recognize that if they don't keep up with technology, they will lose a competitive advantage. Or to put it another way, invest in this new technology in order to maintain and increase your technology, uh, to, uh, your competitive advantage. So, so do, do you see a point in time then when, uh, when we, we all have 3D printers at home and there aren't big factories? Um, I think we might. Where are we at the moment? At the moment, if you use your favorite search engine, you, you will find somebody with a 3D printer in your town. So if you want to produce something um, from a 3D print design, um, you, you can download it from the internet, uh, you can forward it to uh, a, a local 3D printer and they'll make it for you. Um, if you don't do it very often, then that's probably the best way to do it because you probably don't want to spend a thousand pounds or fifteen hundred dollars or whatever it costs these days to have your own printer. But um, I think we will see it develop more and more. I mean, people are even talking about 3D printing food. Um, I'm not quite sure whether uh, um, I, I want to go down that route, but uh, I, we are going to see some quite remarkable changes. And, of course, if we're sending simply a bag of um, a, a feedstock of, uh, or picking it up at the supermarket and we're sending all the instructions down the Internet, then we don't need packaging. We don't need delivery lorries. It's changing the business model quite uh, quite fundamentally. Yeah, yeah. So really uh, amazing uh, level of change that we're going to see, and we're starting. We're starting yeah. to see really um, mm, mm. starting to occur. I mean, are there, you know, what are the sort of uh, so the key components then of sustainability? Uh, they are what? Well, key components: um, energy, food, water, waste, population. Climate change is the big one at the moment. Climate change is um, very important. Um, climate change is about mitigation and adaptation. What do they mean? Mitigation is what governments and major corporations can do. Mitigation is taking action to try and slow down and stop um, climate change, the effects of climate change. Adaptation is what you and I have to do. Um, like uh, I have to put up sandbags. Well, I'm, I don't at the moment, but I mean, I would have to put up sandbags to keep the water out of my house. That's adaptation to the reality of climate change. So I think that's one of the top um, pressures. But population is a pressure, and that's a very difficult problem to crack mm. because uh, the first reaction to people that people have to population is, oh, well, we've got to control the birth rate. The truth is that it's not the birth rate which is the problem because the rate of increase of population is slowing 
And there are very few countries now where the birth rate actually exceeds the replacement rate. The problem with populations is that people are living longer and therefore more generations are alive at the same time and that's why the population is increasing. But the other thing is, bearing in mind that there are 7.2, nearly 7.3 billion people on the planet at the moment, between now and 2030, which is only 15 years, it is anticipated that 2 billion of those people will move from being... um, well, subsistence or or, or poor people, into being what we call middle class. And therefore, their demand for Western-style lifestyle, Western-style diet, driving cars like we do, living in houses like we do, having consumer goods that we do, all that will put a tremendous pressure on the whole of the world's resources. Not because the population is getting any bigger, but because people are increasing their standard of living, increasing their expectations. Now, the other thing, as far as population is concerned, which is a consequence of climate change, is that with um, violent storms, unpredictable weather, with rising sea levels, land can become permanently damaged. If it's flooded with salt water, then you're no longer going to be able to grow anything on it. And that starts migration. That starts people moving away. We had a lot in in the press over the last few weeks about refugees, people leaving Syria and people coming from Eastern Europe, pushing into Western Europe and into the UK. But if places like Bangladesh, which are very low-lying, become overrun because the sea level rises, then we are going to see many, many more, thousands, even millions of people on the move because they they cannot live in places where they cannot uh, pasture their cattle or grow any crops. So a challenge for the world, and one of the challenges which is being addressed at this moment of the Paris Conference Let's stop you there because we need, we need to go to commercial break. Let's, let's, um, when we come back after commercial break, let's have a, a conversation about the Paris Conference and, uh, and what world leaders are doing at the moment and whether it's making a difference. So we're we'll back with you again in just a couple of minutes. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called The Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. The Leadership Hour explores what it takes to become a leader who inspires. Inspirational leaders drive higher creativity, lower turnover, and better quality work. Yet few understand their impact on others. We are blind to what we do and don't do well. Training can help, but only if we know our blind spots. To hear strategies for becoming an inspirational leader, join Christine Cowan Gascoigne on the Leadership Hour, where leadership and inspiration intersect. Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Great leaders today have certain capabilities that set them apart. These leaders have discovered transformational leadership. Now, you can discover the same ideas, insights, and programs that have led them to success. 
Inside Transformational Leadership, hosted by Kate Ebner, is produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. We'll explore these stories and concepts every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, it's Chris Cooper. I'm with Anthony Day. We're talking about sustainability. And before the break, uh, Anthony articulated and shared a lot of information with us about uh, about the you know the different challenges that we face, different pressures around around commodities and uh, food and water and population and and climate change, and talked a little about technology. Uh, but I was wondering, Anthony, you know, the world leaders are you know they, they keep getting together at climate summits, and I kind of wonder, you know, what are the challenges uh, for them? Um, but are they actually making a difference? Well, as we speak at the time of this recording, there is the major conference going on in Paris, um, and it's one of a series of conferences. There was one uh, five years ago in Copenhagen, and people generally thought that was a disaster. So they've got very, very high hopes for this one in Paris. Now, the fact that 195 leaders, world leaders, attended the opening of this conference shows that every government in the world thinks it's important. and. We hope that they will come out with uh, an effective uh, agreement, something which will actually mitigate climate change, which will reduce carbon emissions, which will slow down global warming, and will prevent us getting to a level of temperature increase, which leads to catastrophic climate change. The risk is that if we go beyond an increase of 2 degrees centigrade, then uh, things could get totally out of control. And we are just about up at an increase of 1 degree centigrade at the moment. Now, whatever's agreed in Paris, it all depends on whether the governments actually go away and uh, they fulfill their pledges. But um, there are a lot of warm words. There are a lot of um, good wishes. There are a lot of things which give us rise for for confidence, um, confidence in a good outcome. But I think that, uh, as they say, the proof of the pudding will be in eating. We'll have to wait and see. And I'm concerned that they're saying that we will have a binding agreement to review all this in five years. I think we should be reviewing in 12 months and 24 months and 36 months. I don't think we can wait five years, but we shall see. Yeah, yeah I really, I mean, what I really get in talking to you is, you know, the, the pace that you're talking about this, you know, I absolutely get from uh, from the conversation, the, the, the sense of urgency that you feel, that uh, and perhaps the, the frustration that you feel at uh, the the pace things, uh, you know, these issues are moving forward, and maybe um, the speed that people are addressing them and and grasping them. I mean, just do you want to you know, just articulate a little bit more for us, you know, the consequences of climate change, for example, so people really understand it. Well, I think one of the most obvious ones is violent, unpredictable weather. And, of course, we're looking over quite a long time scale. So something that happens today um, and doesn't happen tomorrow doesn't prove anything. But if you look at the trend over a period of years, you can see that things are changing. 
So, for example, we've just had serious floods in the northwest of England, up in Cumbria. Uh, you can't stand up and say, oh, well, that's climate change. But what you can say is that is totally consistent with climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the sort of thing that we expect, because we've actually had over a foot of rain fall in one day, and that's exceptional. And that is the sort of thing that we would expect if climate change is real, and I'm convinced it is. Uh, we have floods in some places. And that obviously has implications for livestock and for agriculture. And in other places, we have drought. California has had four years of drought. And um, that equally has um, serious implications for agriculture. California produces 80% of the world's almond crop. And the trees are dying. So anybody anywhere in the world, particularly those who like almonds, need to be worried. And, of course, in California, the farmers there are drilling deeper and deeper into the ground, drilling their boreholes to draw up water, draw up groundwater. Now, some of that water is called fossil water. Why? Because it's been there for millions of years. Literally, millions of years. It's difficult to believe. But the point is, it's not going to be replenished anytime soon. And the water that they are pumping up from those very deep levels is a finite resource. It's probably a very big resource, but when it's gone, it's gone. So, you know, that's why I said earlier that water is one of these uh, really serious, uh, one of these resources under serious threat. Water plays another part in that when the sea warms or when water warms, it expands. And that's one of the reasons why sea levels are rising. And if sea levels rise only by a little bit, it means there is a lot more water to, um, uh, to, to, to be displaced when you get a storm surge. I mean, for example, if um, the water in the Thames estuary rises by uh, 10 millimetres, that's an extra million tonnes of water. If you get a gale blowing down the Thames estuary, wow. there's that much more water, which is pushing up against the Thames barrier. And by the way, how many capital cities or major cities do you know that aren't actually on the coast or on a tidal river? You know, if sea levels rise, these are all going to be at risk. That's where we have to do adaptation. That's where we have to build flood walls, flood barriers, and hopefully even bigger and better ones than they put up in Carlisle. Carlisle up in the northwest of England, they spent over, uh, they spent about $50 million equivalent on putting in uh, these flood barriers only five years ago, and they weren't adequate this time. The houses got flooded again. So we've got to look closely at that sort of thing. So how much does something like uh, like you know sea ice? I, I, I read that uh, you know, statistic that really stuck in my mind. I read recently is that roughly ten times the size of the UK has been lost in terms of disappearing sea ice since the 1980s, um, which is just astonishing. Yes, and it's a, bit, it's a bit worrying, to say the very least. Of course, that won't necessarily raise the, um, uh, won't raise the sea level. The reason for that is that if it's floating on the surface, it won't make a difference. If you've got uh, a cube of ice in your gin and tonic, when the ice melts, it doesn't actually raise the level. Uh, if ice slides off the Antarctic, which is a landmass, and therefore, that goes into the water and it wasn't there before. That might have an effect. But the, um, the loss of sea ice in, uh, in the Arctic is serious because what keeps the Arctic cold is the fact that the sun reflects off the white snow and ice. 
if the ice melts, as it is doing increasingly in the summer, then the sun shines on the dark ocean, which absorbs heat, which means that when the winter comes, the warmer water takes longer to refreeze. And that means there's less ice, and therefore when the thaw comes again, there's even less ice. So um, that's a problem. The other problem, of course, is that um, snow and ice is fresh water, and that means it lowers the salinity of the sea. Why is that a problem? Well, the Gulf Stream comes across the Atlantic, as you may well know, and as it comes right across the Atlantic, it comes up past the United Kingdom and it brings warmer water, and that's why, although we are on the same latitude as New York, we have much, much milder winters than they do over there, and that's because of the Gulf Stream. Now, the Gulf Stream gets up a bit further north from the UK, and as it finally cools down, the water falls to the bottom of the ocean and the circulation carries on back uh, deep in the ocean and the whole thing goes round and round. If we change the salinity, um, the saltiness of the water, it's less likely to sink down and the Gulf Stream and the currents which drive it could begin to slow down. And if that happened, then we would have serious consequences for the United Kingdom in terms of getting very nasty winters instead of the relatively mild ones that we're used to. Hmm. So, so how's, how's energy tied up with climate change? Well, most of the energy that we use, we, I mean globally, uh, is from fossil fuels. In the UK, uh, a fifth uh, of our energy, of our electricity, comes from fossil fuels. Um, Two-fifths uh, of our energy is used for heating homes and um, offices, and two-fifths is used for transport. When we burn fossil fuels, we produce carbon dioxide, we produce other greenhouse gases, but carbon dioxide is the main one, and carbon dioxide causes the greenhouse gas effect. I mean, it's a natural effect because if we didn't have greenhouse gases which trap some of the sun's heat, then we wouldn't have life on Earth. But the problem is that we are adding to the greenhouse gases. We're thickening the layer of greenhouse gases. More heat is being trapped, and that is warming the Earth very slowly. But it's not just heat, it's energy. And it's that energy which is driving these very violent weather incidents and these very unpredictable storms as well. So the longer that we continue to burn fossil fuels, the more dangerous um, climate change becomes. And it's been calculated, and there are reports which state that we have to leave two-thirds of the known fossil fuels, that's the oil and the coal and the gas, we have to leave that in the ground, because if we burn it, then we are going to cook ourselves, if you like. We are going to be looking not at two degrees, not at four degrees, but probably six degrees, and you know, life will not survive on Earth if we allow that to happen. Well, you paint you paint a a pretty stark picture. Um, well, I know. I mean, this is the trouble. It's it's so difficult not to go to the extent that people say, "Oh, well, it can't be that bad." Mind yeah. you, tell you the truth, I've heard some much much worse scenarios, which I prefer not to believe. But I believe that we can do something about it. I believe we should not uh, be any doubt that we've got severe challenges. But I do believe we can do something about it. And I believe that um, you know people say, "Oh, but yeah, but look at the Chinese or their coal power stations." 
In Beijing at this moment, there is a code red which says that the smog is expected to last for the next three days, that people should not go out even with face masks, and people should only drive uh, their car if they've got an odd number at the end of the number plate and the rest can have their turn tomorrow. That is focusing the minds of the Chinese, and they are going to take action on climate change um, because, you know, they can see when they go out the front door how serious the consequences are. And they're also, I mean, in terms of scale of pollution as well, because of the stage they are in terms of their you know, economic growth, uh, there is a lot of uh, a lot of people, a lot of pollution, and they're, they're you know they're a major major contributor, aren't they? Well, they are. They are the world's biggest emitter now of greenhouse gases. Yeah, but they uh, they stated they will close all coal-fired power stations in Beijing by 2020. That's only five years off. And they are the world leaders in installed renewable energy. They are the ones who are building the solar panels. They are the ones who are building the um, the wind farms because they recognise that that's the future. Uh, so, so actually, you're, you, are you quite impressed with what they're doing to uh, tackle the? Approach over there is that you know could we be learning more from the Chinese, for example, in the United States? <laughs> um, well, I think we could. I mean, uh, I don't want to get too political, but um, we have our own solar industry, we have our own wind industry, but the government has uh, withdrawn all the taxes, all the subsidies, and um, so our industry is in very serious uh, a very serious state and i fear that we may be buying the technology from the chinese just as we intend to buy nuclear power stations from the chinese which is very sad because we have the technology ourselves but we're not being allowed by the government to exploit it sorry about that political rant <laughs> we do we've got a minute left before we go to break um, we've got we've got less and less resources now what do we do? Sorry, you're waking up. I can't hear you. Um, yeah, kind of line to get to phone line. We. Um, I'm just wondering how we do more with less. How we do more with less? Well, the answer to that, I believe, is the circular economy. Now, what does that mean? Um, I would recommend your listeners to go and um, Google. Uh, Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Ellen MacArthur Foundation. They um, are one of the leaders in the circular economy. But what does that mean? Well, we probably heard the, the mantra, reduce, reuse, recycle. That's fine. The most important thing is to reduce, to reduce what we use. Now, we live in an economy, generally, where we take, make, and discard. In other words, we actually we, we grow timber or we grow materials or we mine for metals or oil or whatever, and we manufacture them into products, and when we finish with the products, we throw them away. And then we go and we take more natural resources and we make some more and we use it for a while and we throw it away. Now, the idea of the circular economy is that you throw nothing away. You start from the design stage and you say, look, I want to make something which will last. I want to make something of the highest quality. And I want something that will have many different lives. In other words, this product is something that you may use and you may decide that you want a new one. But then it'll go back to the factory. It'll be refurbished and it'll be sold to somebody else where it will provide um, use for, for a period of time. And if necessary, it can be repaired. An awful lot of modern things can't be repaired at the moment. It's all sealed up. 
And yeah. eventually, when that thing has got to the stage where you can't repair it anymore, you can't uh, use it, then it goes back and it can be disassembled into individual components or individual materials, and all those materials can actually be fed back into the process and then they can start making new products and they won't have had to take any resources from nature at all. We've got to go to commercial break again, Anthony, but uh, after the break, let's just continue with that a little bit more because that's really, yeah. really interesting. So back with you again in just a couple of minutes. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Great leaders today have certain capabilities that set them apart. These leaders have discovered transformational leadership. Now you can discover the same ideas, insights, and programs that have led them to success. Inside Transformational Leadership, hosted by Kate Ebner, is produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. We'll explore these stories and concepts every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. tuned into the business elevation show with your host chris cooper if you have a question or comment about our show please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk that's chris at chriscooper.co.uk now back to chris cooper Hi, it's Chris Cooper. I'm with Anthony Day. Um, Anthony's painting the, the picture around sustainability, and we're starting to move on now to what we can really uh, do with sustainability. If you want some more information on the shows that are uh, available uh, and are coming up over the next uh, few months, and also my take on, on some of the past shows, um, please um, access chris at chriscooper.co.uk and subscribe to the newsletter there. Um, but before the break, um, you were cha- talking with us about reuse um, so reduce, reuse, and recycle. And uh, you know, it was you know fascinating what you were saying there about making um, products that can then be reused in different forms. Because what I've also sort of noticed in the past, for example, is some products like car tires, like you know, like exhausts and those sorts of things have actually almost been you know demanufactured to reduce their lifestyle, so you keep on buying more. 
Yes, that's uh, that's the case. It's called planned obsolescence, isn't it? I went to a lecture the other day where somebody was telling me that products used to be built with something called a sacrificial component. In other words, a component that was designed uh, to fail after a certain time, so you'd have to go and buy a new one. Um, I don't think that's allowed anymore, but he said, of course... Um, we still have obsolescence, and it's driven by fashion or by software and things like that. I mean, I've had to upgrade a computer because it would no longer run the latest versions of, uh, of software. Um, but at least the computer uh, can go, I think, to um, uh, perhaps a developing country and still be used, even though it's not actually running the latest software that I might want to run. But the idea of the circular economy... Um, is that we reuse everything we possibly can. We use a product once it's made for as long as we can. Because the thing I think that people don't recognize is that when you throw something away, you are throwing away maybe some metal, maybe some plastic, maybe some wood, but you're also throwing away the energy that was used in that manufacture. You are confining that to to landfill or whatever. Um, You are throwing away the water that was used in the process you were throwing away the human labor that was used in the process. So the longer that you can actually use a product by repairing it, by refurbishing it, the more mileage, the more usage you are getting out of the water and the energy and the human labor that went into the manufacture in the first place. Really, really important thought. So what, just to let you know, um, Anthony, we've got about sort of, sort of eight, eight minutes or nine minutes or something like that for this segment um, uh, because we had a little technology um, issue uh, a little earlier on before the interview. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, you know, what are the key things? You know, I'm a, you know, I'm a business, um, maybe I'm a business of 50 people or 100 people or whatever. What are the key things that businesses all must do to be sustainable? What would you recommend? Well, um, I think it's about managing change. And I think business has been managing change since the dawn of time. I think what we've got to recognize is that change is probably coming from a different direction now. So we've got to look at redesigning. We design products. We design our processes for efficiency, efficiency of energy, efficiency of labor, efficiency of materials. There are things we can do, low-hanging fruit, easy things to get a win on. Look at LED lighting. LED lighting has been transformed in the last two or three years. You might have looked at it five years ago and thought, well, they're very pretty, they're very expensive, and they're not very good. They are dramatically different now, and the amount of money you can save by changing your fluorescent light to LEDs is significant. And also, because they last so long, you'll save even more time, uh, even more money in terms of maintenance, because they won't need very much maintenance at all. Um, Thin client computing, in other words, and we're doing more and more of this, basically using the cloud. Having a really simple computer, which won't use too much electricity, doesn't need a big hard drive and all that sort of thing, because most of the product, most of the applications are up in the cloud. And more and more that's happening. I'm, I'm finding that that's uh, happening all the time. Um, and things like, you know, it all depends on the size of your organization, but printer management with print, centralized print servers, with printers, um, chosen in order to meet your work processes and your work processes modified in order to minimize paper and printer use is another way of looking at it. But every business is different. Every business has different business processes. They're all worth looking at, asking the question, can I do this more efficiently? Now, the other thing to do is to examine the supply chain. 
because customers are changing their expectations and we've got to keep one jump ahead as we always have to. But at the same time, we need to look the other way down the supply chain at our suppliers and look to see how they are changing their capabilities. Are we making best use of the capabilities that our suppliers can now offer us? And if our suppliers can't offer us anything new, have we got the right suppliers? So it's, it's about managing change. Yeah. <laughs> and can you, um, can, can, I mean, it's about, it's about managing change there and I guess remaining, remaining competitive. And, you know, would you recommend that companies have, a, you know, a sustainability manager or sustainability, uh, you know, person on their board to drive this agenda forward? Is that something you would recommend? Oh, yes. A lot of organizations do have. Uh, sustainable managers these days, uh, particularly the larger ones. But everybody says the key to a sustainable organization is having a committed chief executive. It's only when the chief executive really understands what sustainability means to him, his business, and the world that people actually make um, make things happen. So, I mean, there's examples. I mean, there's a guy called Paul Polman. He is the chief executive of Unilever. Now, Unilever is a company which interacts with 2 billion consumers every day. It's a big company. I mean, 2 billion is more than any government interacts with. And yeah. he leads that as one of the outstanding examples of uh, sustainability. But there are others. I mean, there's um, Asda, which is the... Um, UK branch of Walmart and Walmart itself, ASDA has a suppliers academy because, as it said last year, 95% of its fresh food is at risk from climate change. And if it's going to meet its customers' expectations, it's got to do something about its supply chain. So ASDA has set up a, uh, a suppliers academy to help them uh, meet these challenges. There's somewhere else called Inter Interface Floor, which is a company which you won't be surprised to learn, uh, provides flooring. But it provides a flooring solution. In other words, it makes sure that you've got flooring over your floor, and if it's warm, uh, or it, it comes in and it replaces just that bit. It takes away the old carpet. It remanufactures the carpet and uh, or the tunnels or whatever it is. And it's, it's an example of the circular economy. Another company that people are probably aware of is um, Patagonia Outdoor Gear. Uh, and that is a company which is built on sustainability principles. So there are a lot of organizations which realize that sustainable business is good business. And I think the rest of them will realize before too long that sustainable business is the only business. That sounds a, a really important message that sustainable business is the only business. And, you know, I think if people are listening to this and you know, their CEOs are not uh, interested in haven't uh, demonstrated interest in sustainability, then I think that's a message you should try and help get across and, uh, and, yeah. and get somebody like Anthony into your business to, uh, to talk with those people. Because um, what you've done today, Anthony, is you have, uh, you have really got me thinking about, um, about this. In a, I've been thinking about this in, a, in quite a big way myself for a while, but you know, that, that sense of urgency has really come across Today and also the many different ways and varieties of, of of way that people can think about sustainability and I think some of those things you mentioned there about kind of reusing and recycling are there things we can think about personally as individuals as well. Um, we've just got about a a minute left, so I just wonder if you've got a final message you'd like to leave us with, Anthony. Well, I think what I'd say is we are facing remarkable challenges. 
Now, I've no doubt that we can meet them, but it won't just happen. What we have to do is to recognize these challenges and to take action to overcome them. And that's all there is to it, because we owe it to our children, and we owe it to our grandchildren. We must act. We certainly do. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and, uh, and overcoming with me the, uh, the slight technical challenge we had about um, um, working via um, Skype a little bit earlier for the interview. And uh, thank you for, for really articulating very clearly uh, the problems and the challenges and some of the opportunities that we have. If you want to find out more about Anthony Day, go to www.anthony-day.com. That's A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-Day.com. And his podcast show, you can go to www.susbiz.biz. That's S-U-S-B-I-Z dot B-I-Z. If you've got any questions or feedback on the show, please send them to me at chris at chriscooper.co.uk. And on next week's show, I'll be talking to uh, Jared Nichols, who's an expert on, on, on the future and uh, thinking about the future and how we, um, we consider that as well as sustainability uh, into, our, into our plans um, could be you know, really important for the growth and the elevation of our companies. So once again, a big thank you to you, Anthony. And, uh, My pleasure. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Um, and I'll speak to everybody else again uh, next week. We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.